The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in September 2007. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome Carol Shelley. Hi, Carol. Hi. Let me just read a little bit of your bio. And I think <laughs> what bit. our listeners currently know you as is Madame Marble in Wicked. Yes. And you've had a long association with Wicked over the past four years between the original yeah. production in 2003. Yeah. You were in it till May of 2005. Yeah. You did a little bit of national touring, a little bit in Chicago. Now mm-hmm. you're back as of the end of last month in Wicked. So Wicked's been a good part of your life for the last four years. Yeah. But prior to that, a whole bunch of credits. You started as a child actor in your native London and <laughs> in New York. We're going that far back. <laughs> We're going How way much back. time did you allot for this program? <laughs> we, 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 have, we have all day. <laughs> <laughs> On Broadway, your credits include Cabaret, Showboat, The Last Night of Ballyhoo, your New York debut in the original production of The Odd Couple, uh, <laughs> The Miser, Stepping Out, Tony nominated for that, Noises Off, The Elephant Man, for which uh, you won the Tony Award as Best Actress, Hay Fever, Norman Conquest, Absurd Person Singular, another Tony <laughs> nomination. Tons of television, tons of film work, <laughs> yes. and off-Broadway, if I kept reading the credits, there would be no time for the show. That's so, it. So, Madame Marable in Wicked, that is a, a deliciously wicked role, isn't it? Pun, well, it pun is. definitely intended. It is. P- pun definitely. Um, uh, yes, and, 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 and she, she fascinates me because um, I try not to be obviously wicked. Um, I think it makes her more interesting if you think she's a rather comfy old broad, you know, who, mm-hmm. with a lot of hair and a lot of bustle, um, who's, who's rather nice and fun to know. And then slowly it creeps up on you that she is not very nice to know. She's rather manipulative. So uh, hopefully well, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end to her. Well, one of the lessons of Wicked, especially when it comes to Alphabet, is, you know, uh, don't judge a book by its cover. There you go. And don't, don't judge a marble by her bustle. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And when we first meet her in, in Act One, she's, the, I guess, the headmistress at, at the yes, school. Yes. And she seems to be a nice person and all yes. that. Yes. Yes. Sharp, mm-hmm. you know, as headmistresses can be, um, but, but not unaccessible, inaccessible. <laughs> Well, as a show that has turned out to be a phenomenon and, of course, has such an incredible following, particularly, it's said, among teenage girls, um, certainly we know that the the fandom for Alphaba and Glinda is enormous. Um, do you get hissed on the street? Uh, no, I get I get the same sort of squeals that that the uh, girls do at the end of the show. Oh, they're very excited to see me. I, I'm, it always surprises me because... I, I have to assume that I don't look like Morrible all the time. You're not wearing Susan Hilferty's wonderful costumes on the street. I'm not wearing Susan street. Hilferty's gorgeous costumes or a purple makeup. Um, so it, in, it, it intrigues me that people recognize me. And of all the roles in your career, is this the one that really has had the greatest popular here, here I am on the street or certainly... No, un, un, unbelievably, it's still, if you can believe it, the odd couple. Hmm. Cab drivers really? look at me in the rearview mirror and go, Hey, you're a pigeon sister. <laughs> Which one are you? And I say the other one. So you've and got, that makes them laugh. So you've got teenage girls and cab drivers. I so have, really yeah, your I, fan I, base. I've got it made. <laughs> I've covered my uh, covered the bases, all bases. Well, how, how did you become Madame Marable? How did you get, get into Wicked? Uh, like the other ladies who didn't get it, I had to audition. Uh-huh. Um... 
I had to sing fiercely, which is interesting because I don't have a song. Um, and then I had, they still hadn't got a finished book. So they gave me three pages and said, could you read this with Kristen and Adina? And uh, so the three of us chuckled our way through it. And uh, that was seemingly it. Well, did you have a song originally before the show No, opened? and Stephen Schwartz said, I said, is there going to be a song? I'd like a song, because I just finished Cabaret uh-huh. with the best, you know, solo songs ever written for a an over-the-middle-aged area woman, you know. I mean, I, I didn't think I was going to grow up to be Lottie Lenya, but mm-hmm. I was thrilled when it happened. And so I would like to have had a song, and he said, no, I'm not going to write the song until I know who is going to play it. Mm-hmm. So we obviously thought, well, everything's fine, but she doesn't need a song. <laughs> I think a song would have been interesting. But there you go. Well, the show uh, opened almost four years ago. It'll be celebrating its fourth year pretty soon. Lord. And there have been some changes made to the show, some changes brought in from the London production that have been done in the New York. Little bits and pieces constantly. Yeah, a little I bit, I think yeah. it's just to keep everybody awake. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm lying. It's not to keep everyone awake. <laughs> you know, it's to bring in the best bits right. of the new, new production. Has, has Madame Marvel changed at all in the four years? Um... Uh, it's moved where she's standing, but I'm giving ostensibly, I think, a similar performance. I try not to nail down everything uh-huh. uh, or glue it into place. You know, I, I really like the evening to be um, what it, whatever it, whatever happens. New things, um, the excitement of. Um, of just taking the moment and running with it for a second or two. And have you changed it all now that you've gotten to know Madame Marvel? Older. Well, you're older, yes. but has, has it has it has performing as her done anything to you as an actor? No, I'm still same nervous old Nelly <laughs> that standing in the wings, going, "Please, God, don't make me, don't let me make a fool of myself, please." <laughs> I'm curious as to what you said about not wanting to nail everything down because when we look at a show like Wicked, a big driving monster of a show with so many elements and the songs and the pacing and everything. How much variation is there from night to night? It can't, it cannot really vary. I mean, you have to stay within the parameter of what has been set. Uh, I I sort of liken it very badly to a jungle gym. Uh, You know, there it is. It's a framework. It's absolutely solid. How you swing from this rung to that rung can change very slightly. Otherwise, you fall down and break your head, you know. But I like there to be some small license of whether I catch the rung by my hand or by my feet. And does any Isn't of it a dreadful analogy? <laughs> no, it's a great analogy. Maybe you'll pursue it, but you get, or I'll pursue it, you get to play on the jungle gym with different people in the same roles when you're in a role for for as long as you've had the yes. opportunity to do this. And how much of that, has that dynamic changed? Well, no, that's wonderful. That's really very exciting because uh, it's, again, it, it's, it's like that game where you whisper in each other's ear, um, uh, cherry pie, 
uh, is on the menu tonight. And by the time it gets down to the very end, it's um, Charlie's just plucked one of his chest hairs. You know, I mean, it bears <laughs> no resemblance whatsoever to what was first said. So when you meet new people on the stage, uh, you can take from them. You can draw them out and something new happens to you. Does any of this make sense, or am I just babbling? No, no it's it makes, it makes great sense, though I think the cherry pie to the chest hair might, well, might be an analogy not everyone's going to get. Well, I was just trying to think of another get. chair. <laughs> you know. In terms of doing musicals, you have done, you mentioned cabaret, and you've done a yes. few musicals yes. over your career. Um, is that something you enjoy because it seems like for so long you were you were Doing whether comedic or dramatic, but you <laughs> you weren't singing much. Uh, I wasn't singing much. There's a very long history and a very long story, which I will make terribly, terribly short. My mother was an opera singer, and my father was a composer. So I grew up with an enormous amount of music in my life. Um, I studied the piano, but when I was sent for singing lessons, this stupid uh, singing teacher of my mother's after I had sung my little coloratura piece with my tiny little voice said yes it's very sweet dear but where's mummy's great big beautiful voice and I shut my mouth clenched my jaw and did not open it again for about 12 years. And how old were you at that point? I was about um, 10, 11 Uh she really ruined it for me absolutely stabbed me in the throat Um, yes because I didn't have mommy's great big beautiful voice and never would have Um, so I've never really considered it one of my favorite things although I love music I love singing but I'm still a bit paranoid I don't I I don't have a pretty voice but that's fine because there's character voices don't think Lenya had a pretty voice, but by God, she had character and personality. So did you then take singing lessons at any point? Uh, Yes, I did. When I got to New York, Uh I found that every single gypsy, I wasn't a gypsy, I was a young actor, but I, I mingled with young gypsies. They were constantly studying. Every day they had lessons. They would take their dance classes, they'd take their singing class, acting, they never stopped, and that was a very un-English thing. I think there's a complacency in England that uh, prohibits people from expanding their horizons. Well, you'd come to New York to be in the Odd Couple, but yes. before that you had been working quite so many steadily. years in England. Mm-hmm. You were uh, born and in London. I didn't know any better, but I got here and went, oh, mm. oh, look at this energy, and oh, look how they use it up. And I started to do that. Well, you started as a child in films, and you moved to stage like a year after that. Is that about right? Uh, well, I started when I was three in a movie. Oh, wow. Um, I'm told I slept throughout it, but that was okay. I was <laughs> playing a, a little refugee, and it, it looked pathetic, you know, sitting in a nun's lap fast asleep. So. <laughs> but then how did you get onto the stage then? You, you were still um, a child. I, I, I was a stage child, but in England you couldn't actually be in on stage until you were 13 and could have a license. It was rather like driving a car. Uh, You had to show proficiency in your schoolwork in order to get a license to be able to do stage work. Hmm. Of course, they did get younger children, but they hid them in closets, um, (laughs) especially in movies. (laughs) Once you were out of school and started doing stage work in England... um, 
Ah, but you see, I didn't. You, I, you, I sort of, I came to a grinding halt because there is uh-huh. always a period where you're neither fish nor fowl. You know, you're not a child and you're not a grown up. So, in fact, I went to art school and studied theatre design. Huh. It, I needed something, you know. So how did you go? You studied theatre design, so then how did you end up back on the stage? Oh, I got to about 18, and uh, Audrey Hepburn was gorgeous and young, and we all looked like her, and suddenly it was it was a very good look to get work with. <laughs> so what kind of work were you doing on stage in England? Can you tell uh, us a little about what was going on at that time? Mm-hmm. for a while. And uh, then um, I sort of got back to London, and uh, I have a wonderful story. I was auditioning for the New York production of The Boyfriend, and I got to about my third or fourth audition, um, which was at like quarter of one on a Saturday morning at some theater or other, and a young man came up to me and said, uh, Carol, just give me your phone number, would you? And I said, but you know... I'm already done four auditions. I can't think why you haven't got my phone number. He <laughs> said, well, give it to me again anyway. So I gave it to him. I went on stage. I sang my song, came off stage, and that night got a phone call from a young man called Tony Walton, <laughs> who said, um, we met this morning. I pretended to sort of know you and be part of the other show. But in fact, John Cranko and I were standing out front waiting for the theater to clear because our auditions were about to start at one o'clock. But we saw you and we're offering you a part in John's new review. <laughs> so Will you, you come and have tea on Sunday? So you didn't actually audition for them. You were auditioning for something else. And they I was auditioning for something else and well. that sort of <laughs> stuff. But was that perhaps a ruse since wouldn't at that time Tony Walton have been involved with the, the woman who ended up being involved Julie in Andrews? The Boyfriend? Uh, no, no. <laughs> it, it wasn't to it get wasn't, you out of the way? No, I, I wasn't even auditioning for that part. <laughs> I was Mimsy or Doris or something. I can't remember their names. Um, no, he was producing John's new review hmm. called New Cranks. And um so you got yeah, a part yeah. for for a show you weren't even auditioning for. I know, it's an, I think it's a great <laughs> story. So you were saying that for the boyfriend you were auditioning to come over to New yes. York for the New York production. How did you ultimately make the move to New York? Neil Simon was in London uh prepping a show called Little Me for an English production and while he was there he thought he'd look for his two pigeons because he couldn't find what he was looking for in New York. And um, I was recommended by one of his Little Me producers who had seen me in a show. And uh, I arrived with seven other girls. And we were all mixed and matched and mixed and matched. And we read a little bit of the scene, the big scene in the second act. Um, And finally, there was a call back and there were only four of us and a bit more mixing and matching, mixing and matching. And then finally, Monica Evans, who has since gone back to England and married and had children and given up the business. um, I felt I should just let you know what had happened to her um she and i were put together and it was sort of it was peanut butter and jelly it was just perfect 
and uh, he he left the orchestra. He came through the pass door, and we went over to him, and he said, "Well, we opened in Washington," and we said, "Oh, how nice for you, how lovely." <laughs> and he said, "No, we <laughs> opened in Washington," and we screamed, and that was it. Now the pigeons that you refer to are the pigeon sisters who live upstairs above yes. Oscar and Felix. Yes. Uh, did Neil Simon envision them as being British? Is that what? Yes, he did. He wanted them to Which be. Which is why he couldn't he find He wanted anybody. them to be Carnaby, Carnaby Street birds. Uh-huh. A bird was slang for a girl. Back in and the 60s. So yeah. I think that's partially why he called them Gwendolyn and Cecily Pigeon. Gwendolyn and Cecily being part of Oscar Wilde. And, and the, but he didn't really, you know, he doesn't think along those lines. So obviously it was all just sort of fermenting in his brilliant brain. <laughs> but it bears noting that for people who don't realize now that The Odd Couple was one of Neil Simon's very early plays. It was not so at the second long or third. Run. I think it was, so it was just very early. It's not like, I mean, he'd done some musical books, as you say, Little Me, but it really was. Oh, that was later. Pretty. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, no, no, I guess it must have been about that time because yeah. he had done Come Blow Your Horn. Uh, what's the one that takes place? Um, the Barefoot top, in the Park. Barefoot in the Park and The Odd Couple. Those were the three. So take us first. back. The original Oscar and Felix that you were working Walter with. Walter Matthau and Art Carney. And and just can you can you remember a bit about being in that show? and, and Mike the, Nichols that directing. Yeah. Oliver Smith uh, designing. Anne Roth costumes. Gene Rosenthal lighting. It was the creme de la creme de la creme. And we thought it was always going to be like that. <laughs> you mean through your career? But yes, you know. Oh, isn't this smashing? I mean, the, the day after we opened on Broadway, uh, there were like 24 mounted policemen holding the line to the box office from mid 45th street all the way up to the Astor hotel and round the corner onto broadway and in what really is a phenomenon in any era you not only did the show on stage phenomenon. you got to do the film but we had to and, audition and you got to do the television series but we had to audition really <laughs> yes for both yeah for all three yeah we didn't the only one we really basically didn't audition for because mike nichols took us at face value because neil had said he liked us uh-huh. um was the play. The original isn't show. That, isn't that wild? Yeah. Can, can you talk just a little bit about each of the Oscars and Felixes that you worked with? Well, and how Walter they'd... was it. W- Walter was sublime. Um, and I, I, I love Art Carney. I love him. I love him. But if I had to choose, and I really don't want to, but if I had to choose, it would have to be Jack Lemmon. Hmm. I think Jack in the movie was just phenomenal. Now, when you, when you came over to do the show, you were... And I have to say, very briefly, that we rehearsed the movie like you would rehearse um, a play. Uh, it had never been done. Howard Koch, who produced it, said, I've never seen a movie rehearsed. What? But anyway, we rehearsed it and so that everyone could have their say and do what they wanted to do. And when it got to shooting, you would just shoot. You would just do the scene. You'd had to say, you know. So Jack said to the two girls, said to us, teach me the scene. Teach me the length of time of each of these big laughs because I don't want the editor getting in the way or cutting off by moving, you know, 
the camera or the camera angle. I would like to just leave it, because it was in widescreen, I'd like to leave it in one so that the focus is in the same place. But I don't want to come in with the next line if you tell me that it's a longer laugh. So he would wait on that shot. He would hold it. He would just Knowing that the editor couldn't edit because it would become a jump cut or something. Exactly. Uh Very smart. Isn't that smart? (laughs) Because editors... Because people were gasping for air. And, of course, editors in a dark little editing room can change a performance by by cutting. Change a performance, ruin a a comedic scene. Mm -hmm. Um, Because quite often, you know, a really good comedy has to go back to the editing room and they have to put in some stuff to cover a length that isn't there. So with this extraordinary run in this role in in three different mediums, yeah. when you came over, when Neil Simon said, "Oh, you should you should be a pigeon," yeah, was it your intention originally to just do the show and go back, or had you decided New York was well, where you wanted to be? Uh, I didn't decide until the second day I'd been in New York. <laughs> <laughs> um, I it excited me from day one. I the energy, the life, the the um, no, it's got to be the energy. Really, blew my mind because England was very lethargic, and I was always a, kind of a pushy broad, and never knew that <laughs> that if I stayed in New York, I'd be just fine. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm curious, though, because when you come over, and again, I, I don't mean to harp on it, but this, this great trifecta of, of playing the roles, in that it was your introduction to New York and the theater community's introduction to mm-hmm. you, was it difficult for you to get your next roles? Yes, it was. Howard, you are so smart. People thought that that's who we were. We were so good at it, and I'm not, I'm not saying that. Uh, you know, as a pompous old cow, I'm that people thought that's who we were because it came so naturally to us. So, what did you have to do? Um, sit it out and get out of town, do other work where people didn't know one quite as well. Maybe um, I was lucky; I put in for my green card almost immediately, got it, and got a play. Uh, being put on by David Merrick, who we found out later only really wanted the movie right. So whether it was a hit or a miss, um, he was going to take it off after three weeks, but we didn't know that. And what was the show? It was called The Astrakhan Coat. Not a film, I recall. Never a film. (laughs) Just a three-week wonder. But I did get to meet Roddy McDowell, who became a very dear and loved friend. And... um, it led to other things. But I, I, I was the queen of commercials for a long time. I was Mrs. Middle America, believe it or not. You can make a good living in commercials. Oh, you could then. <laughs> but you were quickly being hired not for your English accent, but for... Well, luckily, I had played mainly Americans in England. Huh. Isn't that wild? Huh. Because your next Broadway role, again, not a long run, but you were certainly in uh, an important play as we look back on it, which is Loot. Was that almost immediately? Uh, it was about a year after Astrakhan Coat. Humph! Well, uh, that was the first production, uh, first Joe Orton production on Broadway. And it was 
fascinating. I've since done another one, and the audience is still shocked. Well, you did what the butler saw some 20 years later. Yes, with Joe Maha, who was just one of the world's great actors. But how did the audience take to uh, Joe Orton in 1968 on Broadway? Perverts, get off the stage, it's disgusting. (laughs) They were shocked. Tell us a little bit about the show. What what was Loot about? Loot was about um, a dead woman being put in and out of her casket by her son who's just robbed a bank and can't think where to hide the money. Kind of a black comedy? Very black comedy. (laughs) However, Orton was brilliant in so much as it was... It was like Oscar Wilde. It was like doing Oscar Wilde. It was like doing a restoration comedy, except it was vile and brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and was I? I don't recall the chronology. Was Orton still alive, or had he no, already died? No, he had just been murdered mm. by his lover, who then committed suicide, and obviously had an enormous sense of humour because he was for, his spirit was definitely around. Hmm. Um, uh, I, I I will tell you a little story. Um, our, our props were constantly being moved off the prop table and they would be found somewhere else. And they even hid someone to see if someone was creeping up to the table, grabbing a prop and putting it there. No. It, it was never seen. However, on stage, I am having a duologue with the young son who has doing terrible things by taking his mother in and out of the casket and changing the money around, etc., etc. And I want him to open a wardrobe that's locked because I want to see inside. I play Nurse Faye, who is there to look after um, his father, who's not been well. Nurse Faye is uh, the most delightful, delicious, adorable monster. She has murdered 11 husbands and gotten away with all of them. Anyway, she's saying to him, open the cupboard door. And he's saying, no, I can't. Open the cupboard door. I haven't got a key. Open the cupboard door. Um, No, I will not. And the door is creaking open, facing upstage. And I'm thinking to myself, it's all right, the audience can't see it yet. Open the cupboard door. No, I won't. It's opened a bit more. Well, this goes on for about what seems like 10 minutes, but it must have been two at most. And finally, the door is so open that I have to say, I don't care. I'll open the door myself. I took it by the handle and the entire door came off in my hands (laughs) and flattened me. And do you blame the spirit of Joe Orton? I know I do. I know I do. <laughs> Joe, you're a rotten kid. Because it was um, one of those doors that has a spindle at the top and at the bottom. Uh-huh. And you slip it into place and then you put the plinth on top. Uh-huh. There is no way it could possibly come out. At least not by itself. At least not by itself. <laughs> so what, what did you do then to recover uh, from Well, this? I was on the floor under a very large, heavy door. <laughs> he got it off me and we propped it up against the wardrobe, shrieking with laughter. And we had to laugh about it. I mean, it was just ridiculous. The play was down the toilet, but then it was pretty much down the toilet anyway. Well, you went from being shouted off stage as perverts yes. to... Uh, 
no coward. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what a segue, um, So, So now you are showing your versatility. <laughs> well, the segue was yours, not mine. Because your next two shows, you did uh, you did something called No Coward Sweet Potato. Yes. And then after that, Hay Fever. Yes. So so that started to show off your, your different sides of it. My musical talents. Um, certainly in um, the short-lived uh, Noel Coward Sweet Potato, uh, which was a sort of modernization by Lee Becker Theodore, was the uh, director slash choreographer, uh, who wanted to do wild and wonderful modern things to Noel Coward's <laughs> enchantment of the 20s and the 30s, you know, it didn't really work. You know, watching the um, balcony scene from Private Lives with two people on roller skates <laughs> didn't do it for me, and I was one of them. <laughs> then a very significant show for you, because yes. you were nominated for a Tony Award, nominated for a Drama Desk Award, Absurd Person Singular, the yes. Alan Akeborn show. Dory oh, Akeborn. Those a- early Akeborn stories. Players were just out of this world. Akeborn has has been called the the Neil Simon of of England. I think he, he really was at that very time. prolific playwright. Yeah, and yeah. and he dislikes that enormously. Does he should say? <laughs> but. Yes, I'm I'm trying to think how to answer all this about Akeborn because he's he's you know he is he's incredibly successful, and I love doing I my favorite one. Although absurd person was brilliant, just brilliant. And I got to work with stunning people. It was only a six-person company, and it was Richard Kiley, Larry Blyden, Tony Roberts, Geraldine Page, Sandy Dennis, and me. And we should say, you know, when we talk about Akeborn in this country, a lot of Akeborn plays haven't been seen because people say, well, they're too British. You just read the rest of the cast for Absurd Person Singular. And they're all American. They're all American. What was it like being the one true English person Um, in a decidedly English play? How do you you say this word? (laughs) (laughs) Did you get a lot of that? Yes. How would you say this word? Well, it's interesting because the show was set in England. Yes, three Christmas Eves. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Uh, the same thing happened when you did the next Akeborn play, uh, um, when you did the Norman Conquest, or three Akeborn plays, we should say. Mr. Benjamin and Miss Prentice decided that accents were unnecessary and that they were just going to do it American. Oh. And the rest of us were playing it very British. Um, Estelle Parsons, Barry Nelson, um, who... One ooh um oh Estelle Ken Pons- Howard Ken Howard Divine Ken yep. Howard we were all doing it you know because the cadence the way it was written all the wording the 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 structure of the sentences except for the Benjamins who decided it could be uh, it could be. <laughs> La la. <laughs> well, again, Let's in their day, there. those <gasps> were those were major, you know, a major introduction for Americans to Akeborn's yes. work. And you were just saying how much you loved the work. What <sighs> what about it really appealed to you? Well, uh, especially with um, Norman Conquests, the brilliance of this construction, which is that it's three plays, which is which are all happening at the same time albeit on different nights. But while you're in the living room, you're hearing what's happening in the garden, what's happening in the uh, dining room. When you come to see the play that happens in the dining room, you hear what's happening in the living room and the garden. Uh, and, and it all just meshes and joins together. And 
He's a very, very witty man. He writes wonderful characters. And we also had a wonderful director, um, both times... uh, Was Eric Thompson. Eric Thompson, Emma Thompson's father, Hmm. late father. Sadly. Now, in Absurd Person Singular, you played Jane, one of the, 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 the yes. three women in the show. Yes. What was she like? What was Jane like? Jane. Jane was, um, Jane was a suburban, uh-huh. suburban housewife married to a man who really wants to get to the top. And in fact, by the third act, does. He's, he's, past everybody but she's still this suburban little mouse and uh, totally overrun and overruled by him it's really it's it's a play that starts out hysterically funny gets funnier and the third act is terribly funny and so dark and so frightening that by the end of it you are in shock that's how brilliantly it's structured now, we're talking all about Broadway. Mm. It's interesting to note that your ne- the next role that we want to talk about really began off-Broadway, and people forget that, and that is Mrs. Kendall and the Elephant Man. Yeah. Um, that show, and I've spoken to people who had read that script back when it first appeared mm-hmm. and, and couldn't even make heads or tails of it and mm-hmm. what it was going to be like. Can you talk about the creation of the Elephant Man and remembering that it wasn't an immediate Broadway sensation, it but it was it, 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 this small small church. It was the, the, it was the first the play to be done at the first, first thing to be done there in this little black box. In fact, we had to almost get dispensation from Rome to put nails in the wall to hang the set up. Hmm. Um, oh, oh, you know, we've only just finished building it. Well, We've got to get the set up. Uh, well, you'll have to fill in the holes when you leave. All right, we'll <laughs> fill in the holes. <laughs> so it was uh, it was very funny. Uh, a script came to me, and it was about half an inch thick, the, the whole script. Mm-hmm. And so you're saying fairly thin relative to some that you would see. Yes. Uh, unbelievably thin. Um, it... it I was drawn to it, and it moved me, touched me from the moment I read it. It it clicked in my head. I then gave it to my agent, who said, you're not even contemplating this piece of rubbish, are you? I said, I'm not only contemplating it, I'm going to do it. And he said, you're going to undress? I said, well, it calls for it. Mm, Doesn't seem gratuitous to me. Uh, I think I'll, I suppose I'll have to. Uh, it was only the top. Uh, I hesitate to say that I actually undressed all the way, but I, it was the top and it was just my back. But um, I was terribly moved by it. Uh, and at the, the time, the, of course, we didn't. that story was not as well known as it is I now. We know, know it, it now because of the play and then the, the I film. I didn't know it. I didn't yeah. know anything about it. I'd heard of Sir Frederick Treves, who was the doctor, in just in passing, I I couldn't have told you why or how I knew about him. Um, I, the story was shocking and truly believable that the English would treat a freak like that. I remember later on in the run, uh, they announced that David Bowie was going to play it. And I thought, well, that's 
going to put the nail in the coffin. I mean, that's just out the window. Now we're having rock stars playing it. And then a piece came out in the Times. And the, the sentence that really blew my mind and made me apologize to him without even having met him was he, he said out loud, uh, I think I can play this part because I have based my entire career on being a freak. Hmm. Which was Ziggy Stardust. And hmm. your role, Mrs. Kendall, she's the woman that, that befriends him and yes. is sympathetic. She's a, a made up character uh-huh. of a, an amalgam of about four people. In fact, the real Madge Kendall, there was a woman called Madge Kendall who was an actress, uh, never met him. Her husband met John Merrick, but she never did. She wrote him letters. So having done my homework and finding out that, in fact, we never met, um, I I threw everything out the window and just decided to sort of make up Madge Kendall. Well, you mentioned how thin the script was. And was the script developed, or was it because there was none of no, the staging in it? What? There, well, there was no staging. We It was a... It was a very powerful rehearsal period. There was an awful lot of aura, for want of a better way of putting it. You you were in something that had a larger life than you or the play. I don't know if that's a good way to describe it, but I don't know how else to describe it. Mm-hmm. We all felt that something bigger was happening to all of us than had ever happened before. And Jack Hofsis was very much an integral part of that. The director. Yeah. So once the show became a success, what was your agent's reaction? Well, his first night reaction was tears streaming down his face saying, oh, oh, I'm blown away by it. That rewrites are just stunning. I said, not a word. (laughs) Not a word. So much for you. (laughs) And was it an immediate success? Was it the moment it it hit the stage? It was a success by the third performance Hmm. in St. Peter. Uh, You couldn't... uh, It was sold out by the fourth performance, the entire run. Hmm. It was it. It was in, it was it. I think we either had a four-week run or a six-week run. Um, It was sold out, gone, finito. Um, There were 75 seats in the house. And it was a room twice the size of this and, and, were, and were taxi drivers recognizing you for this role? Or, no, or still as, no, as, no. as the pigeon sister? <laughs> um, I guess still pigeon. Uh, <laughs> but anybody who was anybody came to see uh-huh. that. I mean, Fontaine and Nureyev, uh, Catherine Hepburn, n- name it. They got a ticket somehow. Uh, then we had to stay at St. Peter's until they had found another couple of producers uh, Richmond Crinkley kept 51, of course, percent, but he needed another 49 in order to get some money to take it to Broadway. Then we had to have costumes because ra- what we were wearing was pulled off the racket, some down and out, thrift cheap, shop. <laughs> thrift shop. Uh, the set was uh, the only thing that was kept because it was absolutely brilliant. And then, and I'm having a, 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 a an senior moment. I cannot remember David's other name. 
Mm. Oh, well. And then did somebody fill in the nail holes when they took the set away? I don't know, but I think by then they didn't really care because they'd had a piece of it. Yeah. You know, they got a piece of it. <laughs> Noises Off came a couple of years later. Yeah. How did you go into that show? Um, I I became the lead, leading character in the second company when they took that company to uh, Los Angeles. The uh, original or San Fran- Yes. Yeah. Um, and and then we did the national tour, which was wonderful because nobody had ever seen anything like that. I don't think it was hysterically funny. It really was a brilliant piece. Your next uh, Tony nomination came for Stepping Out, which was in 1987. Oh, what was I the show? 1987. Oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a show to do tonight. You know that, don't you? <laughs> what, what, what was the show? Who was Maxine, your character? Maxine was the most delicious show-off. It was a, it was a play about a Thursday night ladies' tap class where eight women, all from different you know sides of life came together to to uh tap their troubles away and you got to hear their stories and then they're offered um they're offered a uh, charity show would they please do a number so it all becomes about them doing a number and the end of act 1 is they do the number and they're appalling mm. Uh, but something something happens within them, and the second act is they get offered another sh- uh, charity show, and they want it to be good, and they work, 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 and all all the drama that they bring to this tap class suddenly gets left behind, and they all want to pull together, and it's 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 a beautiful, it's a it's a very sweet play. As we've been talking again, we've and been also talking. I hadn't tapped for years, <laughs> and it's it's in the blood, you know, and especially but you had with to do Tommy it not too. So well, uh, uh, no, I was the show off. I could oh. do it as well as possible, which still wasn't very good, but <laughs> I had a ball doing it. <laughs> and, and had you in real life tapped? Before? Yes, but I hadn't tapped since I was about twelve. Mm. But it all, I mean, blood memory, talk about Stella Radler and her blood memory. It came back. Kind of like uh, having ridden a bicycle in years. I, I can't and... ride a bicycle, but I'm told that's, yeah, yeah. that's true. <laughs> <laughs> We're giving a bit of short shrift to some of your off-Broadway work, but I do want to ask you particularly about Later Life, the Pete Gurney play, <gasps> because so that gave you a workout that actors must dream, dream of. You dream of it. You played how many characters in that show? Six. And in the course of one show, is it, a? I mean, to create six different characters on one night and yes. do them every night? From an old lady, an old Bostonian lady, to um, a New York Jewish violinist, um, uh, to a uh, Long Island lockjaw lesbian, um... <laughs> Uh, to a, uh, a a lady and her husband from Texas. Uh, oh, name it. I did it. It was wonderful. And then I also played the hostess who was giving the party. So um, I had to keep jumping back in and out of her, her dresses, her dress uh, throughout the play. 
and you'd mentioned earlier that you know in in England you were playing Americans. Certainly, a Pete Gurney play is is very absolutely. American. I had the most wonderful um, uh, speech coach and uh, got six six accents. Well, two of them were Boston. Which was so it doesn't really count then. No, I only five, had to five do accents. four accents. Four. Yes, five accents. <laughs> it's interesting as we look over your career. It seems that you've gotten many more opportunities to go beyond being the English bird Absolutely. that showed up in, in the mid '60s. Absolutely. But is that something? Do you still have to work on those accents? Do you still have to work on the dialects well, when you, you know, play? Well, you know, I'm convinced that uh, I think. You know, some people say, oh, oh, English are very good at all these different accents and American things. I think you're either good at accents or you're not. And my my theory is it's to do with music. You hear it like music because the phrasing becomes musical and um, the the cadence. I find it very difficult to ad lib with my accents. Uh Because of the structure of the of, of the uh, sentence. Well, you used the word musical. You went into two musicals before Wicked on Broadway. Mm-hmm. One was uh, Showboat, the 1994 revival yes. Showboat. Then yeah. later, twice in Cabaret. Yes. Do you enjoy doing musicals? Twice in Cabaret. Well, yeah, it shows you here being in twice, which you'd gone in in uh, oh, 99 I, I and then had, went I back had in had time, in 2002. Time off, yeah. I had a foot accident, uh-huh. yes. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. So do you enjoy doing musicals? Because they're very different than plays yes, in the sense of yes, singing. I do. I, I love the... It's a thrill to hear an orchestra warming up and to hear a live orchestra. And the idea of, of there not being live orchestras for musicals... Um, gives me thoughts of 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 murder mm. you know they want to be able to if they choose uh, put music down on on tape or recording and it's just not the same and during this whole period from 1965 when you first arrived here mm-hmm. until now some 42 years have you gone back to impossible. work impossible I'm only 36 <laughs> have, have you gone back to work in England again no I lie Forgive me. I lied so quickly off the top of my head. Uh, Twice. Uh Twice in 43 years. Um, I went uh, back, and the first play I did was I played Lettuce in Lettuce and Lovage, which was glorious. I had great fun. I did it for a year, and it was exhausting. Um, But I loved every second of it. It's a wonderful play. And the second... Uh, thing I did there was Hal Prince asked me to go over and do Showboat. Uh-huh. And I, I, I'm so in love with that musical. It's And that was after you had done the Broadway version. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. But to be in that piece of history was sublime. Mm-hmm. It's musical history. What was the experience then of going back to the English stage? We we often ask English actors what it's like to work over in New York, how they find it different. But after being immersed in New York theater for so long, how did you find the English experience? Well, when I was Lettuce, um, so much was riding on my shoulders. I mean, it's a huge, enormous part. Uh, Dame Maggie Smith created it brilliantly, as always. Um, and it's... It's a play about lettuce, and, and it, she carries the evening. So I, 
I got help from the woman who who played opposite me. But if I may say so, she gave it grudgingly. Turned out that she actually wanted to play lettuce. You know, what are you going to do? But the night she made a boo-boo and I bailed her out, it was magical because she was so grateful. I guess, I don't know, they're, they're not as warm and fuzzy as I thought they were, the English. Um... And, and, and it was an almost entirely American uh, company for Showboat. Mm-hmm. I'm really quite spoiled. I'm, I'm, I know I'm now an American. That's all there is to mm-hmm. it. Well, coming full circle, uh, now back on stage at the Gershwin Theater in Wicked yes. as Madame Marble. Yes. And through middle of January, I guess it is. So people coming to New York this fall can certainly see the original oh, Madame Marble yes, on stage. Please do. Well, Carol, thanks so much for being with oh, us today on Downstage Center. It's a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks, Carol. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.